This morning I'd like to reflect on the theme of investigation. And I'd like to start with a story, and it's a rather long story, so I'll ask for your forbearance. Rebecca was 19 when she was referred to our clinic, but as her grandmother said, just like a child in many ways. She couldn't find her way around the block. She couldn't confidently open a door with a key. She sometimes put on her clothes the wrong way, inside out, back to front, without appearing to notice. She seemed, as her grandmother said, to have no sense of space. She was clumsy and ill-coordinated, A klutz, one report said, a motor moron, said another, although when she danced, all her clumsiness disappeared. Rebecca had a partial cleft palate which caused a whistling in her speech, degenerative myopia requiring very thick glasses. She was painfully shy and withdrawn, feeling that she was and had always been a figure of fun. But she'd formed warm, deep, even passionate attachments. She deeply loved her grandmother, who had raised her since she was a child. She loved nature and stories, although she never learned to read. She was at home with poetic language, and was herself in a stumbling, touching way, a sort of natural poet. She was devout, loved the lighting of the Shabbat candles, going to synagogue, and fully understood the chants, rites, and symbols in the Orthodox service. All this was possible for her, despite the fact that she couldn't count, read, or write, and scored low in all IQ tests. Thus she was a moron, a fool, or had so appeared and been called her whole life, but one with an unexpected, strangely moving poetic power. Superficially, she was a mass of handicaps and incapacities, and at this level she felt herself to be a mental cripple. But on some deeper level, there was no sense of incapacity, but a feeling of calm and completeness, of being fully alive. Spiritually, she felt herself a full and complete being. When I first saw her in the clinic, I saw her merely as a casualty, a broken creature who scored low on all tests. The next time was very different. I came across her in the garden, sitting on a bench, delighting in the beautiful spring day. She sat composed with her face calm and smiling. She could have been any young woman basking in the warmth of a beautiful spring day. This was my human as opposed to my neurological vision. Spurts of poetic words fell from her lips as she described the beauty of the day. The low score in all of her tests had given no inkling of anything but the deficits of what was wrong. They had given me no hint of her positive powers, no intimation of her inner world that was composed, coherent, and poetic. I realized the inadequacy of our evaluations. They failed to show us the beauty of Rebecca, who enjoyed not only a simple but a sacred view of nature, who was filled with promise and potential. What I saw in Rebecca, what she showed me, I began to see in all the patients in the clinic. Rebecca was the first to tell me that we paid far too much attention to the defects of our patients and far too little to what was intact or preserved. 
At her request, we moved Rebecca from the workshop she hated and managed to enroll her in a special theatre group. She loved this. It composed her. She did amazingly well. She became a complete person, poised, fluent with style in each role. I think Rebecca's story, in many ways, could also be our story. How often in life we experience the reality of feeling not to be seen fully, not to be heard, not to be understood fully. But the story of Rebecca's psychiatrist could equally be our story. We also see how rare it is to see or to understand or to appreciate another person fully, to see the whole of this moment. We sense how prone we are to seize upon the particulars in this life and assume them to be the truth. And we think, well, what does this have to do with the path that we are walking on here? And we see how very much this path that we are cultivating, practicing, really holds at its heart a very deep willingness to probe beneath the surface of all things, to deeply understand what is true, to understand what is whole, that the meditative path really holds at its heart its willingness to question everything, its willingness to probe underneath the appearances and to investigate all of our constructs, our assumptions, our conclusions, our images and opinions, to find our way as much as we're able to the truth of each moment. Because this is where we find harmony, this is also where we find freedom. I think it takes a great courage and a great generosity of heart to cross the borders of our own hearts and minds, the borders that are created by assumptions and conclusions and judgments. Because to question really means to surrender an apparent, but also an illusory safety, the kind of safety of our minds that seems to rely upon knowing imagining our opinions. Now, in this teaching, investigation is said to be the most important factor, the most significant factor of enlightenment, a quality that leads to depth, to awakening, the factor that transforms us. But investigation is also the quality that leads us from what we know or think we know to what is unknown. It is a way to, ve- to peace. And in so many ways, investigation means that we take nothing for granted. It is rooted in a genuine openness of hearts. I would almost refer to it as a kind of sacred or a kind of d- divine curiosity. Now, the world very much is what we believe it to be. 
we become who we believe ourselves to be. Other people are seen through the veils of who we believe them to be. Now, some of our beliefs are formed in the space of a moment. I'm sad, I'm inadequate, I'm wonderful. You think about the changing face of beliefs, the changing face of identities that we go through countless times in a single day. Some of our beliefs and some of our constructs, of course, are much more historical, deeply rooted in past experience and often rooted in experiences of pain. That I'm helpless, I'm incomplete, I'm vulnerable. We see the ways that outer experience, the role that outer experience plays in shaping our beliefs. If someone speaks to us harshly or critically or ignores ignores us, we can see in that moment our world beginning to be formed by beliefs. You are such an insensitive person. I am so hopeless. We might see and practice a sense of disappointment when we we feel that we fail to reach some desired experience or, or goal and how we form our shape, our sense of self in the moment. I am a failure. Someone praises us or applauds us, shows us kindness, and suddenly that whole world changes, and I'm worthy and lovable, and of course our supporter is the most wonderful person in the world. We see how our inner experience is shaping our outer world or our perception, our belief about it, If we feel lonely, if we feel depressed, if we feel disconnected, of course our whole world takes on the shade of that construction, doesn't it? The silence is so alienating. You know, everybody here is just into avoiding the world. We feel calm and peaceful, and of course the whole world is sharing in our serenity, isn't it? Everything is just so peaceful here. What is amazing is that amidst all of our changing constructs that we go through in a single day, the way that we can continue to be hooked, to be captured by the belief of the moment or by the assumption of the moment. Now, it is probably clear to us the way that we live in a world that is formed by our personal constructions. Not only our beliefs and our opinions, but even on a more subtle way, the ways in which our perceptions are already shaping the world, that our perceptions are not innocent in any way. We see a Buddha statue, and for one person, it's a great inspiration. For another, it's a sense of, you know, why are we burdening this path with these images? We go through our life with the descriptions of terrible and ugly and beautiful and attractive, hardly even questioning at times whether these perceptions are actually describing what is true or whether our perceptions are actually simply describing what we believe to be true. We live in our world, sometimes the constructions are just the dominant mind state of the moment of sadness or excitement or happiness. It is so apparent that this is our world. 
This is our world that we live in, that we act from, that we speak from, that we receive from, that we interpret from. I don't know if you have ever had the experience of going through a photo album that traces your life from the time you were a child, and you, you look at it with a sort of sense of disbelief. You know, oh, there I was when I was in my sort of, you know, hippie life, you know, and there I was in my this life and my that life. And when we look back on it, we think it all felt so eternal that this who I was going to be forever. This is how I was going to see forever. We see this journey, certainly a very similar journey in a much more condensed form in meditation, in a single day, how we can go from cynicism to appreciation, to chaos, to calm. And every, each time we can so again think, this is forever. This is forever. This is how I will always be. This is how I always have been. Many of these constructions actually do very, very little except to divide us from what is, to alienate us from others. Now this journey of investigation, this journey of awakening, in many ways is a journey where we are endeavoring to question, and in that questioning, to bring our own personal constructions just a little closer to what is actual and to what is true. And in that, also acknowledging that at times we simply don't know what is true. That we simply don't know what is actual. But part of that journey is untangling and and understanding and probing and investigating what we believe to be true, not only for our own well-being, but for the well-being of our world. In this willingness to be silent, to listen inwardly, there is the beginnings of our capacity to some ways break up or unpack the constructions that imprison and divide us. Because we see that when we're silent, we are always coming back to ourselves, coming back to this moment. And we do begin to see so clearly that as our constructions begin to dissolve, that in many ways that is a beginning not only of liberation, but it is a beginning of healing. It is a sense of emerging into an understanding of our own intactness, our own completeness, our own inner freedom. We begin to understand that whenever we seize upon the particulars, we are alienated from the whole. And whenever we seize upon the particulars of ourselves or from another, that is not a neutral seizing, that that is the beginning of the process of despair, of judgment, of sorrow. And in this teaching, what we are cultivating in a way is a kind of creative disbelief, 
kind of creative disbelief, not a negative disbelief, but a more creative disbelief. Every time we see those moments of contractedness happen. If I give you an example of this, quite a few years ago I was teaching in Israel and on a kibbutz and I needed to go to the office one day and I saw lying outside the office door one of the kibbutz dogs and it had this enormous, I saw this enormous growth on its skull. And it was one of those moments when initially, you know, some are like too painful to even kind of articulate the sight. But then I saw, oh, you know, this poor dog is just lying here in misery. You know, the story begins, just lying here in misery on this hot day. You know, who's looking after it? Why hasn't it been taken to a vet? You know, and I could really begin to see, you know, maybe these people are a little bit uncaring about animals, you know. I could really begin to see the story begin to build, including then my determination. I needed to speak to these people about what was going on. Some hours later, I had to come back to the office again, and there was a dog just sitting up by the office door with no growth on its head at all. And when I looked at the dog in the ground beside it, there was this rock exactly the same color as the dog's fur. And it was like that whole moment, you could see that world just disappear. It just disappeared. But what was extraordinary was, you know, we're not waiting for the world to change in order for our beliefs to change. In this practice, we actually go the other direction to look where we are actually constructing our world. And there are so many clues, you know, the, the judgments, the narratives, the opinions, the views. There are so many ways that we be, listen to the clues of how we are constructing a world about others, about ourselves. There are many opportunities to do this. That is the wonderful thing. There are many opportunities to do this. Here we think we are in this more protected space, you know, and we don't really have the opportunity to look at these great constructions. I doubt that that is true. Hmm? You sit beside someone, they shuffle. You're waiting for the next shuffle. Hmm? You're waiting for the next bit of restlessness. Start to construct a world. You know, perhaps they're in distress. Perhaps I need to write a note to the staff. Perhaps I need to write a note to them to ask them to stop being so restless. You can see the whole world beginning to construct. And we wait for the world, almost the signals for the world, to reinforce our view rather than questioning our view. We might have a pain in our knee. Suddenly, you know, we get into a whole story about it, you know, the difficulties of our body and aging and meditation and all the rest of it. A moment later, we've drifted off into some fantasy, completely forgotten about that knee. But then we come back from the fantasy and there, it's still there. And we start to construct, but we're almost again waiting for what is the pain to return. Do we notice in those moments what is well in the body? In our story about our neighbor's restlessness, do we notice actually what is not restless in that moment? Do we see the way that we have seized upon a particular and that particular has become the whole? That detail has become the whole of our world. In a sense, we miss 
that completeness. It's a little bit like breathing in and hardly ever breathing out. Now, in a way, when we, if we are not present, if we are not attentive, it is so easy just to slip into these constructions and assume them to be true. And we can see every time we do that, there's a kind of abandonment of the whole of the moment. It's like a little bit like the psychiatrist with Rebecca. If, if the psychiatrist had only seen the neurological assessment of what was wrong and what was imperfect, Rebecca essentially would have been abandoned. She would have been abandoned, unseen in her entirety. Now, in the practice, of course, what we are doing, we are countering this tendency of learning to be attentive rather than inattentive, to question rather than assume to be awake rather than to fall into the habits of our constructions. And in a very real way in doing that, we are learning, in a way, the art of non-abandonment. We're learning to embrace the whole of the moment of another, of ourselves, rather than seizing upon a fragment of the moment. Now, this non-abandonment, I think, requires not only investigation, but I think it requires courage, as I've mentioned, but I also think it requires a real dedication, a willingness and a dedication to be moment-to-moment reaching for healing, for freedom, for completeness, rather than settling for the contracted and the fragmented. We learn to pay attention to these slogans and these mantras that say, I am, you are, this is. We learn to pay attention to what we are dwelling upon, obsessing about, what is repetitive in our thoughts, our judgments and emotions, because these are all the doorways that reveal where there is contractedness, where there is construction happening. And there are whole styles of meditation practice that will deal just with the question of what is this? Of what is this? Rather than this is. Where every thought, every construction, every opinion, every judgment is simply met with that question of what is this? Encouraging the investigation, encouraging the willingness to see more deeply. I think in our own experience, what we do see is that dwelling or obsession really doesn't last that long in the face of that investigation, in the face of that questioning. Our willingness to no longer conceptualize anything, to no longer consent to assumptions and conclusions is the beginning of freedom. It is a little bit like Nagarjuna when he says, when I no longer insist upon being someone, I am free to be no one. Now many of our judgments and our assumptions and our conclusions are are kind of latent, aren't they? They're sort of habitual. Often we don't even know that we have a construction or a belief or an assumption until it clashes with a different assumption. You know, you may be the most meticulous cup washer on this retreat. 
you know, and you may not even be aware of how much you cling to the idea of being the most meticulous cup washer on this retreat until you go to the sinks and there sits a dirty cup. And then we see the story clashing with this unacceptable moment, you know. There are others here, you know, why are people so mindless? You know, why do they leave their cups there? It shouldn't be happening. They should be like me. Then the world would be much happier. We don't even know until there's a clash. But we also see that many of our tendencies to construct, to form opinions, to fix reality in place, is actually compelled by anxiety. The anxiety about uncertainty, about not knowing, wanting and needing to have a position. We find ourselves forming opinions as a way almost of making the world familiar and then making the world somewhat safe. And, and for sometimes it feels like to say, I don't know, is seen as a kind of vulnerability, is seen as being adrift, unsafe. The curious thing is that the opinions and the judgments that are born of anxiety don't actually lead to a greater sense of safety. They don't actually lead to a greater sense of freedom. They make us more anxious and insecure. The more that we insist upon the world being in a particular way, as we want it to be or believe it to be, is also the more heightened our sense of anxiety and insecurity will be. It's so curious that if we believe someone to be irritating, if we believe someone to be annoying, we may feel actually very little need to investigate that assumption or conclusion. We may feel very little inspiration to cultivate a greater generosity and tolerance in our own hearts. What if we discover that our restless neighbor is actually quite ill? Or our restless neighbor suddenly extends to us a great sense of generosity, opens a door for us, takes our dishes for us to wash. Suddenly they are no longer just that annoying person. What would we do with our assumptions and conclusions in that moment? Our world can change. We would be invited to see the whole. We would be invited to see that we have only seized upon a fragment. And this is what we are asked to do in ourselves. Investigation does have different levels. There is a spectrum within investigation. Its intention, its purpose is to awaken us. Its intention is to enable a greater sense of freedom. There are a couple of dimensions of this. One is experiential. And one dimension of investigation is very much reflective. Can we pause at the end of a sitting? Can we pause at the end of a walking? At the beginning of a sitting, right now? And ask ourselves, what is the quality of our heart in this moment? What is it that is sticking? What is the state of our mind? Because this is forming our world. We may take a moment to reflect on what repeats itself. 
what we dwell upon, what we obsess upon. And instead of condemning that, to ask, what does this need? What are we being asked to understand? What are we being asked to let go of? Sometimes reflective investigation is simply really being brought to the teaching. Are we really living in the light of understanding change? Are we really living in the light of understanding kindness and compassion and its benefits? Are we really living in the light of understanding not-self? Do we understand how suffering is caused and how suffering comes to an end? These are the questions, again, not to turn into a new obsession, but they are the important questions of our lives. They are the questions that need to be close to our hearts to really bring the teaching into our personal world as a way of liberating that personal world and that personal story. Do we probe in the day, the times when we say, I am, you are, the world is, can we turn that around and say, am I? Are you? Is this? Instead of jumping on the train of constructions, jumping on the train of seizing upon fragments and particulars to address our attention more to understanding the wholeness, the completeness of each moment. Investigation is also very much experiential in in a very real way. I would say that all of meditation practice is, of course, experiential investigation because it is about extending the boundaries of our psychological, emotional, spiritual world. It is about extending our horizons rather than just being more intimately acquainted with what we think we know. When we look at all those places, inwardly and outwardly, where the thought comes, I can't, it's too much to be with, I can't embrace this. If we see ourselves looking at our, the rhythm of a day and say, no, no, it's too much, and then we commit ourselves to actually just being present with one moment at a time. That is experiential investigation. When we see the pain in our knee and instead of fleeing into abandonment, we, we bring again a different approach of let me check out, let me explore the landscape of this pain. That is experiential investigation. If we see the mind beginning to move into familiar patterns of, of judgment or proliferation or blame, and we, we notice in that moment, it would be helpful to cultivate some restraint. That is experiential investigation. We're actually going beyond the boundaries of what we know, exploring what is happening rather than we see our beliefs about what is happening. It is clear, I think, in this practice and in our life that the most direct way to transformation is really to turn towards all the places we are tempted to flee from that the most direct way to transformation is truly to question all of the places where we believe ourselves or the world to be a certain way, where we see ourselves living in a world of assumptions, returning to what is and being willing to embrace the unknown, the sense of not knowing, 
but the willingness almost to be taught by the moment, the willingness to listen and to learn from the moment, to stay present in the midst of the habit of abandonment is really so much the essence of this teaching. Because that is where, instead of accepting the impossible, it is where we begin to explore what is possible. It is reaching towards awakening, not only our understanding of ourselves, but our understanding of the world. It is really the path of freedom. <laughs> 